if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, as we continue to make our way through the book of Psalms, we finished in Psalm 1 last week, we looked at the blessed man as ultimately being fulfilled in Christ, and now as we come to Psalm 2, we'll be looking at a psalm that is very clearly uh, about Christ. And uh, so we will begin together by reading uh, the whole psalm. And, uh, and then praying. So Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, and, and this psalm is identified as a psalm written specifically by David um, in the book of Acts. So David here, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we see here that all rebellion against you and against Christ is futile. It will amount to nothing. You have fixed your king, established him on the throne. You swore long ago to your servant David that he would have an offspring and that you would be a father to him and he a son to you and that he would reign forever and ever. And when you speak, your word can never fail. It does not matter how many people, how many powers rage against you. Your plans, your determination, your will 
will prevail over all things. And so, Lord, as we look at this psalm about you establishing the throne of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we see the promise that you have given to him that all of the nations would belong to him, I pray that we would heed both the warnings and the promises that are given here, that if we find our refuge in him, if we swear allegiance to him, if we kiss the Son, if we trust in him and turn away from our wicked ways, we will be blessed. And we will have a great promise of an eternal kingdom with him. So, Lord, speak to us this morning from this psalm. Instruct us in your ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the psalm that we are looking at this morning is one of the most frequently referenced psalms in the New Testament, uh, which, of course, is, is not and, and should not be surprising because it is a psalm that is explicitly about Christ. Verse 2, you'll notice, speaks of the opposition that the nations have against the Lord and his anointed, or in Hebrew, his Messiah, or in Greek, his Christ. It is Christ in verse 7 who is the Son of God. It is Christ in verse 8 who is given the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession, which of course is what Jesus means and what he is referring to in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verse 18, when he says there that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is also a psalm that is universal and atemporal in its scope. It is, in other words, not just about something that happened in David's life way back when but it's about the state of things throughout all time. It is about the relationship between God and Christ and about God and Christ and men. The psalm certainly, as we'll see, speaks about a definite point in time when the Christ is established as king. But the relationship between this king and the men of the world is something that is playing out continually, still to this day. The peoples, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, raged and plotted against Christ, of course, when they crucified him, but they continue to rage against him still today. Christ was given the nations as his inheritance at his enthronement, but his receiving of them and his conquering of them continues from now 
until he returns. The command to serve the Lord in fear and to rejoice with trembling was a command, of course, given to people long before Christ even appeared. And it remains a standing order, as we see even in the writings of the Apostle Paul, who when he's speaking to Christians about their obedience to the Lord in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he describes our obedience as a matter of working out your own salvation in fear and trembling, alluding to this text from Psalm 2. And of course, he says, because it is God who is working in you. And in that same letter in chapter 4, verse 4, he concludes by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So we work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, and we rejoice, just as the psalm calls the nations to do. The psalm is therefore a very apt summary of what God has accomplished in Christ, what he is continuing to accomplish, how people are to respond to him, and how people have responded to him. And so as we work through this psalm together this morning, I want you to, to keep all of these things in mind. This is not a psalm that is only about the past. This is a psalm that is also about the present state of things as well as what is to come. Now, we're going to look at this psalm in four parts. And to begin, I want us to consider the rebellion of the wicked. We can see this in verses 1 to 3. The rebellion of the wicked. Now, of course, the language of the wicked is not used here, but as I've mentioned previously, there are both thematic and literary connections between Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 that links them together so that in the same way we are to understand the blessed man of Psalm 1 as ultimately a reference to Christ, so is it the case that the wicked of Psalm 1 are the rebellious nations and peoples and kings and rulers of Psalm 2. But what is it that they are doing in this psalm that makes them rebellious, that places them in the category of the wicked? Well, first we see that they do not want to be under the rule of the Lord and of Christ. They are plotting. They are taking their stand against. They are conspiring together 
And in verse 3, we find the character and content of their conspiring. They are saying to each other, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The rule of the Lord and of Christ, which, as we will see through the psalm, is an identical rule. There is no difference between them. How Christ rules is how the Lord rules. But this rule of the Lord and Christ is viewed by these nations, by these kings, by these peoples as bondage, slavery. It is a restraint upon their perceived freedom. Liberation is not a matter of submission to Christ in their eyes. Liberation is the overthrow of Christ. Liberation is the death of Christ. The wicked want to be their own rulers. They want their own laws. They want their own standards. Anything other than absolute autonomy is like being bound in chains. Moreover, what we find is that the wicked also hate Christ with a passion. They not only oppose the idea of his rule, they not only oppose the standards of his rule, they oppose him. It's him they have a problem with. In verse 1, the nations are raging against him. They are shaking uncontrollably. They are so offended by him that their anger causes their whole body to tremble. You've probably seen someone that angry before. Maybe a toddler or two. <laughs> they are uncontrollable. They are shaking. This is how the nations are acting towards Christ. They hate him so much that they've turned into crazy toddlers. They do not have mere disagreements or differing perspectives on life. And all they're trying to do is have a cordial conversation with the king about how they can meet in the middle. No, they do not respect him at all. He is worse to them in their eyes then their greatest enemies in the regular course of life. These nations are warring nations. These are nations who usually hate each other, who are, because of the reality of sin, always shedding each other's blood. But when it comes to Christ, they're allies. They come together to oppose this man, this God, and this Christ. The opening verses describe for us the true nature, the true nature of fallen man from the perspective of the Lord 
who reigns from heaven. Now, when you speak to an unbeliever about Christ, of course, you may not always see them raging against him on the outside. You might even, as is very often the case, have a cordial conversation about the things of God, about religion, about Christ and the gospel. Though it is certainly the case that even the mention of of the name of Christ can trigger some people to literally lose uh, their minds. But even though you may have cordial conversations with unbelievers about Christ, it is important that you do not confuse the outward conduct of fallen man, which is restrained, mind you, by the common grace of God, it is important that you do not confuse this outward conduct with the inward disposition that they have towards God. It is worth remembering that the early church applied this very text directly to those who crucified Christ. We read, for example, in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 27. The church has gathered together, they're praying together, and they said that God, through, uh, through David and by the Holy Spirit, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then notice what they prayed next. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, kings, rulers, nations, peoples, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I just want to note one thing here. The reference to Pilate. Pilate ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. But you'll remember from the Gospels that it was largely because of the pressure from the Jews. He had some reluctance in this decision. He, in fact, had a rather tame conversation with Jesus about who Jesus claimed to be. When you read through the Gospels, it does not appear that Pilate is pulling his hair out in anger at Christ. He is, again, rather subdued. Now, certainly the crowds and uh, many of the Pharisees are indeed pulling their hair out in anger against Christ. But Pilate, on the outside, fairly subdued. In other words, he did not appear to be overwhelmed by this uncontrollable rage. And yet, that is how Scripture describes him. Why? Because that's the true nature of his heart. He is, from the heart, a rebel against God. 
he, uh, he is from the heart, one who hates Christ, sees nothing in him that is worthy of worship, sees only a man who is worthy of a crucifixion. To reject the Lord and to reject his Christ, no matter how respectable a decision one may think it is, or how reasonable it seems, it is always an act of rebellion from the heart. It is a raging against God. It is cosmic treason that renders you guilty before God and liable to judgment. This is the true nature of man. He is at enmity with the holy God. Now, this leads us to the second part of the psalm where we see the Lord's response to the wicked. Notice with me his response. What does the Lord do? He mocks them. He mocks them. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now in Psalm 1, the wicked are called scoffers. But of course what they scoff at is righteousness, is truth, it's the Lord. We saw in 2 Peter that the scoffers that Peter addressed there were scoffing at the prospects of the Lord's return and they're facing judgment. The wicked scoff because they do not believe that they will be held accountable for their wicked deeds. But while they go about living their lives as if the Lord does not see, the Lord is sitting in the heavens, scoffing at their scoffing. The same words that are used here are also found in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7 where Jeremiah is lamenting over the treatment that he's receiving from people as he proclaims the word of God, as he is proclaiming the coming destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. He is not a preacher largely of good news. It's mostly bad news. In the near future, everything that we love is coming to an end. It's going to be destroyed. And in the context of him prophesying about these things, he describes how people are responding to his message. And he says, I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. They are literally making fun of him. And here... In Psalm 2, the same language is used, only it is the Lord from heaven who is literally making fun of the wicked on earth in their rebellion. Now, this is, no doubt, a far different response 
than how many Christians believe God does or should respond as if this action here is somehow contrary to his gracious and compassionate character. But these same people tend to be those who have a great difficulty reconciling many things, like how God can be a God of love. At the same time, he is also a God of vengeance. Now, it is perfectly within the righteous character of God for him to see sin as the foolishness that it is and to deride it. Let us not forget, it was also God speaking through the prophet Isaiah who mocked the boastfulness and the pride of the Assyrian king in Isaiah 10. Because that king thought that all of these nations that he had conquered, he had done so by the strength of his own hand. He's an omnipotent king. No one can stand in his way. He's boasting about his might on earth. And yet the Lord is mocking. Why? Because this Assyrian king, this ant of a man, does not even realize he is nothing more than an axe in the hand of God that God wields wherever he pleases. Or in chapter 44 of Isaiah as well, when Isaiah, God through Isaiah, mocked the folly of idolatry and the fact that men in their blindness from their sin, their blindness from their idolatrous hearts cannot even distinguish the difference between a piece of wood and God. They take a tree and they cut down the tree and they take some of that wood and they carve an image and then they bow down to it as unto a God. And from that same tree and the same wood, they then start a fire, warm their hands over it, and cook their dinner. The absurdity is obvious for everyone to see unless you're blind by your sin. And the Lord, as he looks from heaven at all of this idolatry taking place, mocks the absurdity of it all. The sin of man grieves him, no doubt. In his grace, and even as this very psalm indicates, he holds out an olive branch for sinners to repent and to be saved. But the Lord also and rightly considers sin to be very ignorant and foolish and a fruitless pursuit. And for those who choose to remain in their rebellion and wickedness, God will be their enemy and he will expose their folly for what it is. Which is what we also see him doing in verses 5 and 6. These verses here explain why. God is mocking the rebellious from heaven. And it's because they are opposing a king and a throne that cannot and will not 
ever be moved. Verses 5 and 6 we read there, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The nations want to rebel against the rule of the king. But because the king has been established by God, because God had promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his offspring would rule on his throne forever, and he swore an oath to keep his promise It does not matter what actions men take to oppose the king. They will all come to nothing. They're plotting, as verse 1 says, will always be in vain. It's interesting as well that the word here for setting the king or installing the king on Zion has to do with pouring something out. Literally, we could read this as, I have poured out my king on Zion. We find the same word used in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 19, and 44, verse 10, where there it refers to an idol maker casting an image, casting an idol, forming an image. The idol maker takes this melted gold and he pours it into an iron casting to form the shape that he wants. But here, God is pouring out or forming the king on the throne of Zion. The king, in other words, is the image of the Lord who perfectly reflects his character, who perfectly reflects his rule, so that the king and the Lord are one. It says Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, it says this of Jesus, the Son of God and the reigning king. It says of him that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation. To see Christ the King is to see God. Jesus said in John chapter 12 verse 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, likewise, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has explained him. He has demonstrated, exegeted him to us. Christ is the exact image of God and the rule of God has been established in him and on the throne of David. And therefore, to oppose Christ is to oppose God. You can't have God apart from Christ. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. As he says, they are one. And to oppose one, to oppose Christ, or to oppose the other in opposing both of them will certainly lead to destruction. And so God mocks the wicked peoples because they are rebelling against a throne and against a king who can never be moved. Then we come to verses 7 to 9, where here we have the king himself speaking, and he's explaining what the Lord said to him and what the Lord gave to him when he was established as king. Now, of course, David is the one writing the psalm, but notice that he speaks in the first person because he is speaking prophetically the words of Christ, his son. I showed you some of this when we did an overview of the book of Psalms, how often throughout David's psalms especially, he will speak in the first person prophetically as if he is Christ, because the Christ ultimately descends from him and is the fulfillment of David himself. So here, David is speaking, but speaking prophetically, and in this prophetic speaking, we are hearing the words of Christ himself. And we read in verse 7, Christ the King saying, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now if you know your Bibles, you've heard that language before. You're familiar with it. When Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Or at the Mount of Transfiguration, when the full glory of Christ was revealed to a few of his disciples, a voice from the clouds said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Or when Paul was preaching at a synagogue in Antioch in Acts 13 about God fulfilling his promises to raise up a savior, a king from Israel and from David's offspring, he said in verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written, in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. The language of sonship not only refers to the divinity of Christ, but it's also the language of kingship. In other words, to be a son of God is to be royalty is to be king. And to be the Son of God is to be the Davidic king. God had long ago promised 
that to one of David's offspring, he would be a father to him, and the king would be his son. And likewise, the language of being begotten that we find here, this does not refer to an actual birth. It doesn't refer to some work of creation. It refers to that moment when David's offspring officially takes the throne as king. In other words, the moment when he officially enters into the role as the royal son. Now he has become king. This is why Paul quotes this very psalm when he is preaching about the resurrection of Jesus and God fulfilling his promises to install one of David's offspring as king. Though certainly the scriptures teach us Jesus was born king, it was not until his resurrection and until his ascension that he sat down at the right hand of God as a man and as David's offspring and as the Christ. Again, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it puts it this way. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or as Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, this is a text that sometimes gives people problems. Paul says there, he was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes people read that text and they say, I, I thought Jesus was always the Son of God, right? Hasn't He always eternally been the Son? That's not what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the moment in time at which point Jesus officially enters into his role as the exalted messianic king. It was then at his resurrection and ascension that he is declared publicly to be the son of God. He was begotten at that moment. He was installed as the son on the throne of his father David when he was raised. Which means also, friends, that at this very moment, he is reigning. Now I'm going to push against my beloved dispensational brothers and sisters real quick, many of whom argue that Jesus has not actually been enthroned yet. We are still awaiting for him to take his seat as the Davidic king on the throne of David. But that's not what Scripture is teaching. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He becomes and is declared that Davidic son of God at his resurrection and ascension. He is ruling as the king now. He rules from a heavenly throne. 
the heavenly Zion, of which the earthly Zion is a mere copy, but which also, when heaven and earth are finally united together again, his throne will be established on earth once more. And then it will be said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But moving on, we also find a promise here given to Christ in verses 8 to 9. The Lord says, the Lord says, as the promise, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, the great question is, what does that mean? Well, to unpack this, I want to start first with verse 9. If you look with me at verse 9, you'll notice here that there is a note next to the word break. If you have an ESV, probably any other translation as well. And it'll say something like, with revocalization, this could also be translated as, you shall rule, or more accurately, you shall shepherd. The point being is that there is a word that is used in Hebrew that depending on how you pronounce it, it basically looks the same, depending on how you pronounce it. It either means you shall break or you shall shepherd. Now, the ancient Greek translation of this text says shepherd. And in every occasion in the New Testament, When this text is cited, it says, shepherd. So I would argue that that is what the text is actually saying. You shall shepherd or rule them with a rod of iron. Now the rod, of course, symbolizes strength. The rod or scepter was a symbol of kingship. And the iron represented strength. This is why you find descriptions, for example, of the Canaanite peoples when they're, when they're presented as this strong and mighty people. But one of the indicators of their, their strength is the fact that they had chariots of iron. They're strong. And so what the psalm is saying in the first part of verse 9 is that Christ will rule with strength. He will accomplish all that he pleases. His sovereignty will be immovable. Nothing he desires to do in heaven or on earth will ever be thwarted. But then, in the second part of the verse, the text literally says, like the vessel of a potter, he will dash them into pieces. Now, in the ancient world, there was a ritual that kings would do to symbolize the destruction of their enemies. We have depictions of this from the 
Egyptian kings. And they would, in effect, have an image or some sort of vessel erected. And they would write on this vessel the names of all of the kings who were their enemies. And then they would take that vessel and they would throw it on the ground, watch it shatter, and to symbolize what they were going to do to all of their enemies. This is likely what is being depicted here. There are two ideas that are being described, therefore. One is the idea of a strong rule over people. A shepherding rule. And the other is the idea of the destruction of enemies. And depending on which side you are on, as it relates to the king, either you are for him or you are against him, determines which idea applies to you. You will either have him as your shepherd king, or you will have him as your enemy and will be dashed to pieces in judgment. This also helps us to understand the meaning of verse 8. Christ there is promised the whole world as his inheritance. All the nations. But of course, the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean everyone is going to be converted at some point? Well, of course not. That's not what that means. What is assumed here is that there will be a purging. There will be a purification of the nations. That's what verse 9 goes on to explain. There will be some from the nations who submit to the rule of the king and some who remain in rebellion and are defeated by the king. And we see this same idea all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. These dual ideas about what's going to happen to the nations in the future. You, you have the prophet, prophets very often within the same breath virtually speaking of all the nations coming under judgment while also speaking of all the nations being converted. We saw this, if you remember, when we were going through the book of Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, we find there that the Lord pours out His indignation against nations and kingdoms. And yet in verse 9, the nations are purified. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 20, Jerusalem is being praised by all the nations. There is conquest and there is conversion. Christ will have the nations as His inheritance by converting some in His mercy and grace and breaking others in His wrath and judgment. And the ultimate question that is presented to all people is which side are you going to be on? As that rule is being carried out now and as it will reach a climax in his return, which side of the king do you fall on? 
And this is what the remainder of the psalm is about. In light of the fact that Christ reigns and that God has established His throne, a warning is now issued. Verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. There is a word, first of all, that is given to all of those who are on the outside of Christ at this moment. If you have not bowed the knee to the King, if you have not kissed the Son and in humility come to His feet, if you have not trusted in Him and turned from your wickedness, the warning that is given is that you will perish if you remain that way. And all of the evidence that we have from Scripture and from history itself confirms that that will be your end. We are reminded again and again, again, I, I'm thinking of 2 Peter as well, about how Peter was, was dr drawing the conclusion that a final judgment would come on the basis of what happened in the days of Noah. All of these judgments that have gone before us are foretastes of what is to come. And if the Lord conquered the Canaanites, if He destroyed the ancient world, if He destroyed these mighty nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, if they were nothing more than an axe that He wields in His hand and once He is done with them, they are consumed like ash. You will not escape if you remain an enemy. The warning is to turn away from rebellion. And as that warning is given, there is, all, there is also a promise that is then extended to all those who would find their refuge in Him. A promise that applies to you if you are in Christ. We read at the end, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You do not have to suffer the wrath of God. You can be blessed if you unite yourself to the King by faith. But even more, and we see this so many times, do we not? Even more, the Lord does not promise to those who come to Him, that they'll just be spared from judgment. He promises to lavish upon them all manners of blessing. He bids the sinner to come so that His eternal grace can be poured out upon them in ways that we can barely even imagine. And one of those promises that he extends to those who come to him 
that they too, you too, will be given authority to reign with him. We see at the beginning of the book of Revelation that Christ himself, as the exalted king, extends his authority to rule to the believers. We read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. If you'll turn with me there again, I want to look at that passage. We read from it earlier. Revelation chapter 2. The church Thyatira is being called in this chapter to faithfulness. They are being called to persevere despite opposition and despite false teaching that is in their midst. And if they do, Christ gives a promise. We read in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus extends his royal authority to his people. If they conquer by being faithful until the end, they will reign with him. And that reign will begin as a heavenly reign with him and will culminate in an earthly reign at his return. You ever wonder, what are the saints who have died and have gone to be with the Lord doing now? They're reigning just as Christ reigns. This is a promise, in fact, that we are given, that we are told about in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul speaks of the fact that we have been raised together with Christ by the grace of God and seated with Him in the heavenly places. And when you conquer, when you endure, when you persevere to the end, you enter into that reign now and that culminates ultimately in an earthly reign at the return of Christ. In other words, just as Jesus is now, just as he reigns now, those who find their refuge in him, though they die, will die as conquerors and will live with him, reign with him, and will come with him again. And in the resurrection, they will come to make war and to establish the kingdom of righteousness on earth. This is the promise that is given to every single believer. Death does not end our lives. We enter 
into reigning with Christ and eternal life forever. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. And if we endure, we will also reign with Him. And so friends, that's what I mean by the promises that are extended to those who find their refuge in the Lord. He does not only say our sins will be forgiven. As grand and as great as that is, He goes beyond. And He gives the promise that the same reign He has will be given to all who find their refuge in Him. Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is hard to fathom the great things that you have in store for your people. But we are most grateful for the great grace and promises and gifts that have been extended to we who were once rebels and who have now been adopted to be sons of the living God. Heirs together with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. And so, Lord, I pray that You would give all who know You endurance to persevere all the more so that we may enter into that reign with Christ. And I pray as well that if there are those who are Your enemies at this very moment, that you would break them. You would break them. You would take their stony hearts and shatter it and then replace it with a new heart that is living, that beats, and has affections for you and your Son. Bring your people to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name.